This is Women Road Warriors with Shelley Johnson and Kathy Takaro. If you drive long haul, short haul, or heavy haul, they're here to empower and inspire women in the trades on TNCRadio.live. So gear down, sit back, and enjoy. You're listening to Women Road Warriors. We're a show designed to empower and inspire women in trucking, in the trades, and everywhere. We cover all kinds of topics, even the tough ones. I'm Shelly, and... I'm Kathy. Our show is about empowering women to achieve big things, and we love to feature guests who've done just that, to give our listeners great insight and inspiration. You know, it's not unusual to get stuck in a bad or even an abusive relationship. There are a lot of women who are there and they don't know why or how to leave. These relationships erode our self-confidence, make us feel powerless, and cause massive confusion. People stuck in these situations often blame themselves when in fact they're the victims. With us today is Lisa A. Romano, a certified life coach who specializes in codependency and narcissistic abuse. Through her own personal struggles, she found a way out of the confusion of the codependent mind that keeps a person enslaved in an abusive relationship. She has terrific insight, and she's helped thousands of people get unstuck and take control of their lives. Lisa is with us today to share her insight. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for doing what you do. Well, thank you. Yes, we like to empower women. It's so important. I thought we could start with who you are and how you started your journey to help free people from abusive relationships. Okay, so um, I was born to two unrecovered adult children of alcoholics, and I ended up in a very codependent relationship, was losing my physical health pretty rapidly. I was developed adult asthma. I was developing migraine headaches. I mean, paralyzing migraine headaches. I was developing rashes all over my body. They were testing me for lupus, for cancer, MS, and they were coming up blank. They didn't know what was wrong with me. And my health just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I went to an allergist and I always say this because it's just true. It's just a weird part of the story, but I didn't like him very much. But he said to me, you better listen to your body because your body is listening to you. And I thought, what, what are you, what do you mean? And as odd as it sounds, but for anyone who's codependent and grew up like I did, they'll understand when I say this was an authority figure that was giving me permission to look within. I never had permission to look within. Growing up in my house, we were told that our feelings were silly. They were stupid. They were irrelevant. We grew up feeling invisible. And so we ended up acquiescing to our parents, seeking their approval, always seeking their approval. And they tend to they tended to withhold it. And so we grew up very codependent, seeking outside of ourselves for a sense of self. So in my marriage, I didn't realize that I was this little girl seeking this man's approval, trying to be good enough for him, and that I had lost myself. In fact, I never even had a self. And after giving birth to three children and owning a business and taking care of a home and taking care of him, I was experiencing burnout. And that's what all these symptoms were about. And I was terrified that I was going to die because that's how sick that I had gotten. And so when this doctor said, you better start listening to yourself, I thought, wow, what does that mean? And I couldn't deny the fact that I was terribly unhappy in my marriage. 
I had been probably since the day I got married because I got married so young. And I confronted my ex-husband and said, listen, I'm very unhappy and I, and I think we should at least go into marriage counseling. And he huffed and he puffed and he said, well, I'm not unhappy. And if you're unhappy, and if that means you're crazy, doesn't mean I, if I'm not unhappy, I don't have a problem. And I thought, well, wow. that sounds logical because of the two of us, I am the unhappy one. So I must be the one with the problem. And after a number of different therapists, I finally went to one therapist and he said to me, you're depressed, but you're depressed because you're codependent. And I thought, what? And he said, you worry way too much about what everybody else thinks and you never worry about what you think. And I thought, wow, does that strike a nerve? And we talked a little bit about childhood history, which no therapist, believe it or not, no therapist that I had been to before him ever asked me about my childhood, ever asked me if alcoholism was an issue or addiction, ne never came up. Wow. So this was the first psychologist that was saying to me, you are this way for a reason. You identify as someone with codependency, which means that you lack boundaries. You don't have a healthy sense of self. You're getting your worth from how well you're able to please others. And I thought, oh my, yeah, Do you, doesn't everybody do that? Like, you know, yeah. you know, my mother does that. Like my sister, my brother, we all do that. So I didn't even realize how dysfunctional it was. It sure. set me on that journey. And it took a really long time. I ended up getting a divorce. It was a terrible divorce. But once I got hold of acknowledging that I had been programmed, if you will, to be a codependent person, and I began to understand that children who are born and raised in this type of a family where your feelings are oppressed, where you are raised to believe that you should be seen and not heard, when I began to realize that it's nearly impossible to escape that childhood and not develop some level of codependency. And then on top of it, I realized that all people are born asleep, meaning we all think that we're far more conscious than we actually are. I thought I need to start helping people wake up to this idea that it's not them, it's their programming. And that if you stay on this path long enough, and you put the pieces of the puzzle together, then you'll realize that codependency is really a subconscious way of viewing yourself, viewing the world and acting out childhood patterns that you're not aware of. And that set me on the path. So I wrote my first book, The Road Back to Me. People started emailing me, can you talk to me? And I thought, sure, I'll talk to you. And then I was working with a book promoter who said, you really need to become certified as a life coach because you're coaching people. And I thought, okay. So then I became a certified life coach um, that was coaching people very often and then decided, you know what, I need to put this on YouTube because I just couldn't keep up with the people that wanted to coach with me. And then I decided to create a coaching program. So now I coach large groups of people at one time versus just one-to-one. -one. So that's really the long and the short of it. You really wow. bring everything into clarity mm -hmm. uh, because I think that people when they're in a codependent situation and obviously they grow up with it they're going to think it's Correct. normal because that's all they know Correct. and mm -hmm. people in codependent relationships they, they blame themselves it's got to be mm -hmm. me it's got to yes. be me and yes you're, you're always reaching out externally for rewards doesn't that also play into overeating and, and shopping and, and always looking for the external rather than looking within? 
For sure. And, and to make matters worse, you tend to attract takers. Yep. So you end up because you're a natural giver and you don't know this is a program. You don't know that you don't feel good about yourself and you don't even know why. So if you come from a home where children were seen and not heard or children were condemned for having an emotion or they were judged or criticized as a child, you're taught to hide your emotions. So you're suppressing. Yep. So you need to escape these emotions that you can't even name. You can't even identify them. So that's what overeating is about. I suffered eating disorders as a, as a teenager. And I abused laxatives and I was, I was exercise addicted. I didn't realize at the time that I was suppressing all of these emotions because I had been programmed to think my emotions were wrong. I was, I was programmed to think that I was defective. And so this created this internal angst and I was aware of the internal angst, but I couldn't name it. I couldn't figure, I didn't know what it was. So I developed isms to escape the feelings. And one of the greatest ways to escape this angst is to focus on someone else. And when you also grow up codependent, you think that your worth is found in how well you can please someone else because you're looking for validation. You're looking for a sense of belonging because that those early childhood experiences, you didn't feel like you belonged. Mm -hmm. That doesn't go away. No, you transfer that as an adult, you need to belong. So you become addicted to your friends. You become addicted to men or women, whatever, you know, you're attracted to. Um, And you also, at the same time, are trying to escape this anxiety or this angst. And that's why we can become addicted to various things, for sure. And it seems like uh, you end up attracting people (laughs) the same kind, uh, Mm -hmm. which makes you feel, oh, my goodness, am I crazy? What Mm -hmm. the heck is wrong with me? And it's almost like uh, somebody who's codependent is a magnet. Yep. And, and the other people pick up the vibe. It's like, wow, this is a person that I can abuse or suck off of. Uh, mm-hmm. I can be an emotional vampire with this person. Yep. It's, it's not even, I don't even think it's that conscious. In other words, mm-hmm. like if you, if you observe a codependent teenager in high school, they will gravitate towards, believe it or not, lots of times they'll gravitate towards a bully. They will acquiesce. They'll compliment the bully. They'll want to do things for the bully and they're doing it because they want to be accepted by this, what they think is a powerful authority figure, but they're doing it for a sense of safety as well. Someone who is more narcissistic will, will be um, turned off by someone who is intolerant of them. They'll literally be energetically uh, turned off. They won't even, they will not gravitate towards someone who is super healthy. Right. They will naturally gravitate towards someone who they can sense lacks boundaries, someone who needs to be approved of, someone who worries about what other people think about them. So there's there's literally this natural magnetic attraction, like you just mentioned. And I don't always think it's, I think when it's conscious, we're talking about psychopathy. Someone who is a psychopath is deliberate, they're intentional. But I would say that most people who are on the narcissistic spectrum are not as aware of how they are. They think that they're correct in the way that they treat other people. And so when they're dealing with someone who's codependent, they think that this person is just weak. This person deserves to be put down. 
this person deserves to be criticized because they're so inept. And the codependent is stuck because the codependent is living below the veil of consciousness and doesn't recognize this pattern, these patterns from childhood have them seeking this authoritarian person's approval. It's almost like a recording in our heads, isn't it? Um, yeah. Because of all the conditioning. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, that blew my mind when I, when I was doing, when I immersed myself in this study, I wanted to understand this subconscious mind. And I thought, oh my God, it could be no other way. The subconscious mind is literally like a taped recorded message. There are literal neurological grooves in our brain because we have thought and felt particular ways so often that we literally have these neural connections that are ingrained within the subconscious mind. And they're actually physical. They're actual grooves in our brain. And that's why I always tell my clients, like, this is going to turn you inside out. For you to change your programming, you have to respect and honor the fact that it's going to take you time to rehearse new thoughts. Even though they don't feel natural, you're going to have to consistently rehearse new thoughts, new belief systems. Then you have to act in a different way which is in opposition to the way you've been conditioned to behave, which is seek someone else's approval. So that in time, you actually change your neurological programming. It absolutely is a taped recorded message in your mind. And you, you, the thing is though, it blows my mind. People don't know that. People think <sighs> that, that, the, that the messages or the thoughts or the feelings that they feel are generated in this moment nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Most of us do not have, um, most of us do not have a new thought. What I do consciously every day is, you know, I just had this conversation with my son. I don't just observe what shows up in the mental field. I change it. I deliberately create an entirely new thought. I think something I've never thought before. Otherwise, I'm only going to get what I've always had. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When is this established in, in, in the mind of a child? I mean, I would imagine it, it starts very early. By the time a child is seven, their programs are pretty set. Children are born asleep. They're born into a dream state. That's why newborns sleep so much. They're literally alive, if you will, but they're in a, their brain waves are in a sleep state. Then they transition into a theta brainwave state, which is a hypnotic brainwave state. So literally up until the age of seven, whoever your caretakers are, they are also your hypnotists. So you are being rapidly downloaded and nature has children between the ages of birth and seven is when a child is rapidly downloading information from their environment. And from a survival perspective, it makes sense because by the time you're seven, you're, you're off into first grade, you know, you're out of kindergarten, you're in first grade, second, you need to know a lot of things by the time you're seven, how to tie your shoes, how to do your jacket, how to do your homework. You're not a little baby anymore. So nature has devised this plan where, well, up until the age of seven, children learn by observation. And if you were, if you think about the first human beings, the first little boy, the first little girl, how did they know how to survive? Well, they watch their parents slaughter animals and skin an animal and dry the, dry the hide to create a coat. This is all through observation mm -hmm. and mirroring. 
And so this also happens on a psychological level. So if daddy's an alcoholic and he drinks when he gets stressed, I'm being downloaded to do the same thing. If mom overeats when no one's around, I become a closet eater. If mom rages when she's stressed, I rage. And so we're literally being programmed up until about the age of seven. It's pretty scary stuff. It really, really is. Wow. Stay tuned for more of Women Road Warriors coming up. Industry movement Trucking Moves America Forward is telling the story of the industry. Our safety champions, the women of trucking, independent contractors, the next generation of truckers, and more. Help us promote the best of our industry. Share your story and what you love about trucking. Share images of a moment you're proud of. And join us on social media. Learn more at TruckingMovesAmerica.com. Welcome back to Women Road Warriors with Shelley Johnson and Kathy Takaro. You know, listening to you talk, um, it's, I'm just sitting here quiet contemplating. It's exactly my life story, mm-hmm. like to the T. And I'm pretty sure it's a lot of people's life stories. Sure. There's so much trauma and abuse uh, in the world. But everything you've said so far is exactly what I grew up in, grew, uh, how I lived, how I thought, how I, you know, treated myself mm-hmm. until I, it actually... I, I didn't figure it out till I was 40 and mm-hmm. I had to go into treatment. I, I became an alcoholic. I was like, I was like, even though I was a nurse and taking care of everybody else, I couldn't set those boundaries. Right. And I, I always left myself on, on the back burner until mm-hmm. life brought me to a place where I couldn't go back to nursing and I had to take time off of life, yep. step away for a whole year and yep. analyze who Kathy really was and how come I'm having these deep rooted behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I remember the very first time I went into that to the, the counselor, she she's telling me about boundaries, I had to ask her, what does that mean? I yep. didn't know what the word meant. And yep. then she talked about codependency. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Yep. And it blew me out of the water. I'm like, what, you know, you, you mean I could say no, <laughs> I don't have to be a doormat. Like, yep. And I was 40, which is really yep. sad. Like I shouldn't have, like people shouldn't have to wait that long <laughs> to yeah. figure it yep. out. Like this should be taught in school, like the emotional boundaries, the emotional um, holes that we, we have inside. And yep. you're right. I had to unlearn everything that had been taught into me since childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I come from a very abusive background since very small. And then I had to relearn who Kathy really was and what that meant. And I had to accept that I'm freaking awesome, right? <laughs> and it's yep. not the opinion of other people that's going to define who I am. It's yep. I define who I am. And I yep. had to rechange my entire thinking pattern, everything. And mm-hmm. it, it, does it happen overnight? Heck no. I'm still working on it every day. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, 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 it blew my mind because, you know, I was in therapy and I was reading the books, but I thought, okay. And that's why one of my books is called Codependent Now What? Cause that was, I was like, okay, I'm codependent. Now what, what, what now? Right. Yeah. Because what you're telling me is if I'm codependent, my, I'm screwed because my subconscious programming, my subconscious default, the way that I think by default is, defu- is defective. How, what the heck? So then it was like, oh, wow, I better learn about the subconscious mind. And so what I did was I basically 
decided to side by do a side by side analysis. Like this is the way I grew up and this is the way a healthy child grows up. Almost like you're looking at two the identical cells, but in two different Petri dishes in two different culture mediums. So a child that was born to a healthy mom and dad, maybe even enlightened and awakened people, aware people at a minimum, people who could nurture a child in a healthy way, acknowledge them, help them feel seen, people who made the child's life about the child, right? Serving the child rather than the child serving the parent, which is should that should not be the way it is, but so many people have children are frustrated with the child, put limitations or expectations on the child, expect this child to make them feel good about themselves, which is wrong. Yeah. So imagine a child being born to healthy parents who got along and who respected one another, a stable environment where addiction was not present, boundaries were present, you add like a grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles, where this child is completely supported by their environment, that child has a much greater chance at success, at emotional balance, at having equanimity under duress, learning, knowing how to handle stress because life is stressful. They'll be able to cope better versus someone who grew up the way I grew up. So I began to look at this and say, it could be no other way. It's not my fault. It's literally my programming. And then it became, well, I need to now reparent myself. So if every child needed to feel seen, and what does that mean? Like, what does it mean for a child to feel seen? It means that parents attune themselves to the children. Whereas in my house, I attune myself to my parents. My parents did not attune themselves to my sister, my brother, and I. They were incapable of it. So in a healthy home, parents attune themselves to the child. So if little Jack is upset, mommy recognizes that Jack is upset. If he's frustrated, she soothes him. Now Jack is learning how to be soothed. In time, Jack grows up and Jack can soothe himself. In an unhealthy home, a child that is frustrated is seen as a burden by a parent. That child is ridiculed. That child is pushed away. That child is discarded and devalued. That child's emotions are never soothed. So the emotional, the ability to emotionally regulate is, it never occurs when a child is born to that type of a home. We're unable to emotionally regulate. So what do we do as adults? We end up becoming nurses. I went to nursing school as well. It makes, so if I can't regulate my emotions, maybe I can help regulate the emotions of others. And in doing that, that's how I'm regulating my own emotions. Because now if I can help you feel better about yourself, Kathy, then I feel better about myself. I have a purpose. Yeah. It's a terrible way to live because I'm living outside of myself rather than through myself. Sure. And children can sense something's not right. And, and don't they, when there's abusive behavior by their parents, they rationalize it in their head? Uh, they oh, make I it must their have fault. Been. Yeah. Because, you know, when you think about a child and a mother and father, mommy and daddy or mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, whatever, they're God. Yep. They're God. A child feels up until about the eight, up until about nine months, a baby isn't even able to recognize themselves as separate from mother. Right. Yeah. So that's why the separation anxiety happens about nine months. Where is she? There's some, 
psychological awareness of other, which I think is interesting because if you think about the word mother, it's other. Take the M away. It's other. Mm-hmm. So up until about the age of nine, babies really don't, they don't have an ego. They don't have an ego boundary. So mommy, for instance, for argument's sake, mommy is an extension of me. And so at nine months where the child is developing this send a little bit of an ego in the sense that I'm, I am separate from mother. That's where the terror comes in. That's when you see babies freak out about nine, nine months, because they're starting to realize I'm separate from this human being. But emotionally, a mother and a father, whatever, they're God to a child. They are the all knowing. So if mommy's upset with me, she has every right. She's right. I'm wrong. I remember up until about the age of nine, I believed that I was bad. Like literally I'm bad. I'm a bad person because I heard it throughout my entire childhood. You're a bad girl. You're a bad girl. You're a bad girl. You're a bad girl. It was literally my perception of self. And it's so horrible to grow up that way. And what I help my clients understand is that that is all programming. Anything that is negative about the divine self, you should not trust. There's a reason you feel this way, and it's valid psychologically and emotionally and spiritually, but it's not, it's not real. Who you are on an innate level, you are holy, and you are divine, and you are sacred. But you're, the, the part of you that has touched the outside world, the outside world is corrupt. And you've brought that in and you, you, you believed what you were taught and that's not your fault. And you know, it's interesting, people raised in these families, a lot of times, they just continue this. They don't mm-hmm. understand what's happening and it so destroys a person's potential. Uh, people can become what perfectionists or they just give up. They'll, I'm not good enough. I'm not going to try that. Eh, it's not going to work. Uh, it, it really plays a, a real mind game. Yeah, you, and it's, it's all about survival, right? So yeah. when, you, when you're a child in this type of a home, the, the game is survival. And yeah. so it's physical survival. If you've been physically abused, then you're, you become hypervigilant. You don't yeah. take your eyes off your mother. Right. You, you watch her facial expressions. So when that's happening, you are pulled out of your right to be a child. You are not socially, psychologically wiring for a sense of self because now the need to survive trumps the child's experience of being able to explore the self. In a healthy home, the house is stable. I don't have to worry about getting screamed at. I don't have to worry about who's going to hit me, who's going to hurt me. I don't have to worry about these things. And in a worry-free home, a child is free to explore, to play dress up, to imagine what it's like to be you know, a superhero. This ma- the magical wiring that takes place to the imagination center of the brain is permitted to take place. Mm-hmm. But when you grow up in a, a frightening home, your amygdala, your limbic system stays activated. And the, uh, your brain is not able to wire to the imagination center. And so that becomes a way of life. So now my life as an adult is about survival. It's not about exploration. It's not about doing something different, getting outside the box. It's not about taking risks, at least risks that might actually empower my life. It's about 
playing it small because I'm still living in survival. And, and that's why the 12 week class that I created, it's, it's just a miracle to watch people realize, wow, I've been living in survival. Yeah. That's why you chose that job. That's why you choose that person. That's why you eat what you eat. That's why you don't take that dance class. That's why you don't ever take that pottery class. That's why you don't go to the gym. You've been playing it small. You're living in survival and that's not your fault. But I always tell my clients, you can't fix a hole in the wall you can't see. So we need to talk about what went wrong so, so people can connect the dots and go, oh, that's why. Now I know why I've done this. Now I know why I behave this way. And that is when you can tap, help someone recognize the field of potential is within you. It just needs to be activated because you can turn your life around if you can understand these concepts. And it's scary to make that kind of change once you realize it, though. Terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. A lot of people don't realize it. They, they think that, um, you know, their childhood wasn't that bad or they downplay it or they create their own memories or they hide their memories or they don't, they refuse to acknowledge it. Or it's really, you have to be willing and ready. Ready is the key word in that sentence uh, to be actually able to go back in time and do some reflection. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of women um, who've been, you know, abused and molested and whatnot. And um, like in the thousands of women and this, the baseline is the foundation of, of, of their childhood. But the, in, in order to get them to talk about it, mm -hmm. that's the hard part because the, people are in denial, right? They don't, they don't want to, or it's too painful. And I tell them it, it's just a memory. It's not going to attack you. It's not going to, you know, um, make you faint or anything like just, just, but it's really, really hard for people to actually acknowledge that something really bad has happened. And maybe their whole life, they, they, they've been living a lie, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so well, for, for me, the first key is just having them acknowledge it. I think denial is real, right? And it's, oh, yeah. a, it's a defense mechanism. It's a psychological defense mechanism. And CPTSD is real. So complex post-traumatic stress disorder is real. So complex CPTSD means that a child, it was um, marinating in trauma and could never escape. And so they've, they've, They've learned to adapt. They're like the frog in the boiling pot of water. They couldn't escape and it becomes a way of life. And so the brain, the mind develops defense mechanisms like denial. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that my mother doesn't mean it. My dad doesn't mean it. My family is not as bad as everyone else's family. Or you know what? I'm just making a big deal out of nothing. It literally is a psychological defense mechanism to prevent emotional overload. Mm -hmm. So when clients are in denial, and that's why I never, I never, people say to me, oh, can I buy my class for my, for my mother? I say no, you know, because your mother has to want to explore her childhood. Yeah. Your mother has got to want to be willing to investigate her loyalty to a family that didn't really understand what true loyalty was to a child, right? So when the, th the issue that we'll, we'll have with people, for instance, if we're talking about sexual abuse, there's so much shame around mm -hmm. sexual abuse. And oftentimes abusers convince the victim that they wanted the abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's yep. my story too. Right. Yep. So you wanted it. It's your fault that I abused you. 
And then sometimes yeah. abusers will say, that wasn't abuse. This was consensual. Or you want you came on to me, right? Yeah. So how what a mind game that is. So here's a, a person who feels like a victim and has this, these moments of terror and now is being blamed, and that creates shame. Mm -hmm. Shame is the most debilitating emotion we can experience as human beings. So mm -hmm. whether we are being abused mentally and emotionally or verbally as children, we experience the shame. It must be my fault. If mommy doesn't love me, I'm defective. So that's shame. Or on top of that, and I'm quite flabbergasted, I am always blown away by how many people reveal in my classes that there was sexual abuse. I think sexual abuse is far more rampant than we realize as a yep. society. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's far, it's far more rampant. And it's, and I think that the more people talk about it, the better for the victims of sexual abuse, because they need to know it's not their fault. And they need to know how abusers manipulate the mindset of a victim to make them feel like they should be ashamed. And shame is a weapon of, of an abuser uses to silence a victim. <clears throat> so I was, I was drugged and raped at 18 after a photo shoot by a photographer in Miami. Yeah. And uh, he said it was my fault that I wanted it, that yeah. uh, I yeah. came on to him, which I did not. And I was drinking diet seven up trying to get the hell out of where I was. Yeah. And one minute I'm drinking a diet seven up, seven up. Next thing I, I know, I'm mm -hmm. uh, I'm waking up with this guy on the, on top of me, telling me that I wanted it. I'm like, excuse yeah. me, yeah. <laughs> wow. right? And the, the yeah. shame oh, yeah. and the, the flipping around and oh my god, it was horrible, right? Yeah. And living with that after that, and then I was self doubting. Did I want it? Like I'm questioning my own behavior. Like what? Yeah. Like, no, sure. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't dress in a in a certain way, or I didn't, you know, come on to the guy. He was absolutely gross. Like I would never right. in a million years. But yep. yeah, so and this happened. <clears throat> more often than, than we realize. Yeah. And I think women are conditioned to think that if they're dressing a certain way that they're, you know, that that's an excuse for a man's inappropriate behavior. Right. It's just not. It's, right. so not. it's just yeah. not like the you statement. Know? What were you wearing? It's like, right. really? Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And, um, and rape, rape and, and sexual abuse. And, you know, that is that that is um, a part of a, a, a particular personality profile because there are there are some men and I would say most, I would think, well, I can't even say most, but there are men where no matter what a woman wore, he would not abuse her. Yeah. So then it comes right. down to the psychological makeup of someone who would use that as an excuse. So it's not, it's not the woman's fault. No. Right, right. Not. You know, and I'm also thinking with abuse victims, they don't trust their own judgment. That's why no. they would, well, like Kathy, you, you were doubting yourself. Did I? Did I? That's mm -hmm. part of the abuse cycle, isn't it? We, we don't trust our own instincts and, and our own thoughts. Well, yeah, especially if you, gr if you grew up in a home where there weren't healthy boundaries and you're, if you're not appreciated as a valid entity, an autonomous human being that has thoughts and feelings, then you don't have healthy mirroring, right? So when you grow up in a home where there's healthy mirroring, like, Lisa, what do you think? Oh, this is what I think. Okay, that's valid. Michael, what do you think? Okay, that's valid. So now when I grow up with that experience, then I feel like my experience is valid. But when you grow up and you're consistently invalidated as a child, it is so much easier for a master manipulator to gaslight that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gaslighting is about getting you to doubt 
your reality. I was sexually assaulted. And the person said, well, if you don't want to, we don't have to after he already did. Oh my God. My, my uh, ex was so bad at that. I'll give you a very short example. Um, within the first month of moving in uh, with him, I had asked him, I said, you don't have one of these crazy freaky things about the toilet paper, which side it should be on, you know, or you take the roll from the top or the bottom. My, right. my stepdad was like that and it right. just drove me crazy. So, and right. he said, Oh no, of course not. That's you can put away wherever you want. And so not even a month later, a month later, I go to the bathroom. I, and I come out and he had a flip out on me because I put the toilet paper on the wrong side. Right. Apparently. And I'm like, well, you said a month ago that, you know, we, we already had this discussion and he's right. like, I never said that. I would never yeah. say that. And he says, yeah. you're the one that's making that up and you put it on the wrong side. And he just flipped it right around. And I'm standing there in complete disbelief. I'm like, I know what I heard. Like, I know we had this discussion, yeah. but he made yeah. it sound as if it was, I was the one that yeah. was, you know, not remembering our conversation properly. Well, he did that over oh, hundreds and hundreds of time in a whole bunch of different situations that really made me question my own sanity. That, sure. Geez, yeah. Did I make that up? Like, am I losing my mind or what? Yep. Yeah. But now, then I'm like, no, I, I am not. So yeah, gaslighting is absolutely uh, one of the, it's, it's absolutely horrible and people don't realize it's happening. It's, it's definitely used uh, in the context of sexual abuse. Yeah. 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 And, and when that's done with a child, the gaslighting, because that, that's part of the abusive behavior, that's just terrible. That's just yeah. an insidious form of oh. abuse uh, that, that tears apart somebody's self-confidence, you know? Oh, it, it's, yeah. a, it's um, I think sexual abuse is the, um, <clears throat> it is, it's, you are hurting someone at the core of them. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, you can, you can throw a rock at me, you know, I can turn my head. I'll get a black and blue, but you didn't hurt the core of me. When sexual abuse is involved, mm -hmm. you're hurting the core of me. I am defenseless. I am, you've stripped me of my rights to say no. And now you're gaslighting me on a psychological level, twisting my mindset, getting me to doubt that I feel like this was a violation. So now I'm not trusting. It feels like a violation, but did I want it? But how could I feel violated if I wanted it? And that will keep a sexual abuse victim in a state of flux indefinitely until this person is able to somehow, whether through therapy or whatever, gets to a point where they realize I was a child or this never should have happened and this was a violation and this is gaslighting. And that's, what I, that's why I do the videos that I do and I do the work that I do because I'm trying to give people the language and the words that they need to identify how they feel and what their experiences are. Because once you give people the language, then they're able to piece together their circumstances and things start to make sense. Stay tuned for more of Women Road Warriors coming up. Great leaders challenge their people not to stop at the first right answer. Tighten the Lug Nuts is the book that will help you move past that first right answer to be more effective, more productive, and more successful. This book serves as a blueprint that can be easily applied by leaders, entrepreneurs, truckers, owner-operators, all of us in our everyday lives. This is one of the best leadership books you can read to help you accelerate towards your personal and professional goals. Plus, a portion of the proceeds will be donated to truckerschristmasgroup.org. Visit tightenthelugnuts.com to order your copy today. Welcome back. 
to Women Road Warriors with Shelley Johnson and Kathy Takaro. Figuring out codependency and abuse and how we evolved, it's really a mystery. People actually have to be, what, a, a kind of a private detective uh, going mm-hmm. back in time, trying to really figure things out. Yeah, I call it emotion. I, I always tease my clients. I'm like, okay, Sherlock Holmes. There you go. Yeah. You have, you have to take the time to look in your past. And I also want to say, um, I think it was Kathy. Kathy, you, you had a, a, it's interesting to me that you had a father who was obsessed with the toilet paper and you manifested a man who had a similar problem. (laughs) I I was shocked too. I'm like, what? Seriously? This is how serious, this is how serious the, I call it the holographic nature of reality. While we're unconscious, whatever wounds us, we end up attracting. Yeah. 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 Are are we trying to fix it? I believe so. You know, in therapy, we call this repetition compulsion. In other words, like I'm, I believe in, if we're talking about the law of attraction, it's simple, it's simple cause and effect. It's like, there's this, uh, this, this experience has happened to me. It's unresolved and, and it becomes my norm and I end up resonating with it and therefore I attract it. But in therapy, they would say it's repetition compulsion. I am recreating this for the purpose of resolving it. But you don't know you're doing that. If you don't know you're doing it, you do it three times, four times, five times, six, you keep doing it until you die. Yeah. And it seems like the mind is, is working against itself. It's like, why does this happen? Well, the mind is not awareness. So that's the thing. The mind is, is primarily subconscious and consciousness is outside the mind. And so in order to heal from codependency or heal from any trauma, you have to step outside of the mind and you have to use your consciousness. So you have to become the observer of the mind. You can't do this work from inside the maze. You have to get outside the maze. That's why a big part of my work is meditation. I take people, I use data brainwave meditations because I believe it's just a theory, but I believe that if I was wounded when I was in a theta brainwave state, then I want to create meditations with theta brainwave frequencies and reprogram someone's subconscious mind for something healthy. And so you can't heal codependency from inside the maze. You have to learn to climb out of the subconscious mind and observe the codependent mind. And from that space, you can start to make change. Is there um, something that you could recommend to the listeners who are listening? And as our conversation goes on, they think, you know what, maybe I have some codependent uh, issues. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend for them to be their next step? Once they, they've acknowledged, okay, I, ha- I might have, a, have an issue here. Well, the fir- my first step was my therapist asked me to read Codependent More, No More by Melody Beatty. <laughs> I'm sorry. I quoted her in my book because I have a chapter yeah. on boundaries and, and codependency as well. And I, I quoted her and, and some of the steps. Isn't it a great book? <laughs> it blew my mind. It actually scared me so much that I know, I read- right? I read the first two chapters and I slammed actually the first two pages and I slammed the book shut because I thought, oh no, if I continue reading, I'm going to be forever changed and I'm going to have to do something because I know myself. Mm-hmm. I am like when you squeeze toothpaste out of the tube, you can't get it back in again. Yeah. I thought if I, if I figure out what's wrong with me, my life is going to have to change. And I had three small kids at the time. And I had a a very angry husband 
And I had parents who loved him. And I had a brother and sister who thought he was the world and I was the bad one. So all of my codependency, all of my issues, they were my dragons, if you will. I was going to have to face them because a big part of why I married him was because my parents loved him. And I thought, okay, maybe this is the way I'll, I'll seek their approval. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so reading that book and I was young, I was only 21 when I met him, but at the time I was below the veil of consciousness, uh, living out patterns, seeking my parents' approval, trying to get them to see me as good. And so marrying someone that they approved of was all part of that, that subconscious desire to get their validation. And so I would say if you're struggling, if you're thinking, oh my gosh, I, that sounds like me. I would definitely pick up the book Codependent No More by Melody Beatty. The kind of books that I wrote, I wrote The Road Back to Me through the eyes of the inner child. I wanted to write a book to help people understand the innocuous ways in which a mother or a father or an experience can diminish a child's sense of self and lead to codependency. So if you're trying to figure out, like, did I grow up this way? then The Road Back to Me is also a good book to pick up and start to read. All of my books are about codependency, though. I've written eight of them. Wow. Um, yeah, and one, is, one, of, one of the eight is actually a Spanish version of The Road Back to Me. Um, but all of my books are all about codependency and, and, and recovering. But if you identify as someone who's codependent, that would definitely be helpful. CODA. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember going to my, my first CODA meeting, and I felt like, where have these people been my whole life? Because sure. yeah. they're talking my language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I left after a while because I, me personally, I think it was very helpful for me to feel like I'm not crazy, but I needed tools. I wanted sure. to know how to stop the codependency. And that's pretty much what I've, I've created in throughout my career is the tools to heal codependency. You're definitely empowering so many people, helping them slay those dragons and yeah. finally awaken and become the person they're supposed to be. And yeah. that's because we're really enslaved, aren't we? Yeah, uh, we are. Yeah. And, I, and I also think that, you know, in the kind of world that we're living in with the media, the Internet, I think there's various levels of enslavement where yeah. we're being taught. And to me, based to me on a spiritual level. The only way we're going to save ourselves if, is if we integrate. So I have to integrate with the past. I have to stop running from the past. Right. I also have to stop recreating it. So I have to integrate. So I have to embrace the inner child. I have to embrace my shame. I have to, uh, you know, um, I heard Marianne Williamson say, say, we have to coddle a pain. Love that expression. I have, to, I have to make peace with my pain so I'm not running from it mm-hmm. and ending up in a toxic relationship trying to um, figure it out in a toxic relationship because you won't, you'll just repeat it. So we have to integrate on an individual level. And then we also have to integrate humanity. We have to stop seeing separation in one another. We have to learn to come together and respect one another and, uh, respect what makes us different. And so I think the big picture is healing from codependency will allow me to feel integrated and allow me to accept other people as they are. First of all, as a healing person, I'm not going to go and try to tell you how to live your life. I'm not going to try to rescue you. I'm not going to um, violate your boundaries. I'm not going to try to get you to need me. I'm going to respect who you are. So 
as I heal from codependency, I'm also healing all of these other relationships that I have with the people that I know, and even with the world, and even with people who are vastly different than myself. So I think the big picture is integration. Mm -hmm. You have such wonderful insight, Lisa. Where do people reach out to you? Um, you can find, well, I'm a life coach on YouTube. You can find me on YouTube. Just search the name Lisa A. Romano. Don't forget the middle initial. And if you want to go to my website, you can go to www.lisaaromano.com. I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. This hour has just flown by. No kidding. <laughs> oh, my yeah. goodness. You're a wealth so of information. And, and thank so you good. for what you're doing for people. Oh, well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to share it with your audience. I think the, the moral of the story is that we've got to stop running away from our feelings. We have to investigate them and ask, ask ourselves, why do I feel this way? Where, yeah. What is this trying to teach me? Because mm -hmm. we're either running from our feelings or we're, we're reacting to them or trying to control them. And our feelings are just indicators that something's up. So if we could just learn to sit with our feelings, not even talk to other people about them, just let me sit with my feelings, whether it's fear or jealousy or anger mm -hmm. or rage or disappointment. We have to make peace with what we feel. So, oh sometimes goodness. holding on does a lot more damage than letting go. And that, that's key. That's true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, very, I think that we have to we have to teach people how to let go. And what does that mean? So letting yeah. go to me is I just have to accept how I feel. And yeah. oftentimes that means I don't have to do anything. I'm, I'm pissed off. What are you pissed off about? Oh, I don't know. The mail was late today. And you know, it's all wet and, you know, I'm just feeling a little aggravated, but I don't have to react to it. And then all of a sudden I, that feeling has processed through me or I'm feeling a little jealous today. Well, why are you feeling jealous today? Well, I saw my husband check out another woman and wow, this little feeling of envy kicked up in me. Well, I don't have to yell at him. I don't have to go chase the woman down. I can just, well, I felt that come up in me. Once I allow myself to process that, then I can ask myself, do I trust my husband? Do I have reason to distrust him? But the first, before I can get there, I have to allow myself to process this emotion. I don't attach to it. I use it as an indicator to tell me where am I and what do I need to look at next? Wow. You have some very thought-provoking information. This is, this is phenomenal. Thank you so much, Lisa. No, thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Women Road Warriors with Shelley Johnson and Kathy Takaro. If you want to be a guest on the show or have a topic or feedback, email us at info at tncradio.live. Thank you for listening to another great interview on tncradio.live. All of the material you hear on tncradio.live on our website, our broadcasts, or our podcasts are copyrighted. There can be no distribution without the express consent of tncradio.live and its partners. For inquiries, write us at info at tncradio.live.